Good evening. Please turn in your copies of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 1. The last two sermons I've preached have been uh, parachuting into the Old Testament, and I've, some of the feedback I got uh, was it's easier uh, to preach if you have a, a book. So I picked the book with the most Old Testament references, and uh, um, we'll start at the beginning. Uh, we're going to start in Hebrews, and it's a, um, the crux of the message uh, of this book is that God has spoken fully and finally through his son. And we're going to talk about what that means tonight. And the rest of the book is explaining what that revelation fundamentally means. It's a book written in a time, uh, first century, uh, the author is not named in the book. Most uh, folks think it's Paul, um, but technically we don't have, um, we don't know for certain. Um, but it's also written to a people who are suffering, a people who are experiencing persecution, a people who are wondering, uh, has God really spoken fully and finally through Christ, and is Christ still worth listening to and ultimately still worth following? So with that in mind, let's turn uh, to the beginning of this book. We're going to read the first four verses, although we're only going to talk about the first one and a half uh, verses this evening. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Before we continue, let's pray together and ask God's blessing. Our Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would even now apply the word that you have uttered through this apostle to our hearts, and that we would understand it and heed it, that you would change us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the most tragic experiences in this life, I think that many of us can experience, is to no longer be on speaking terms with someone that we have loved. Um, whether it's a friend that you've grown up with, whether it's family members, to reach a point where the relationship is so broken that you're not on speaking terms anymore is something that is very difficult to endure. I'm sure many of us could think of examples. If, if we haven't personally experienced this, uh, maybe you know uh, someone uh, who has. I have a relative who, um, she's uh, relatively young in her 20s. I won't uh, say which side of the family she's on, but um, by all accounts, walking with the Lord. Um, member of a church, 
and then one day moves to Kansas, um, and a year later uh, has cut off uh, all communication um, with the family. And as hard as this is to uh, experience for of us personally, if it happens to you or if, if you are trying to comfort someone who's, who's going through this, fundamentally this story is actually not uh, foreign. It's actually on page three of the Bible. Adam sinned against God. And God kicked him out of the garden. But, but, the beauty, the majesty, and the glory of our God is that even though God had every right to, be, to not be on speaking terms with humanity, even at the moment of judgment, God never stops speaking to humanity. Even when Adam has sinned against God, God comes after him. And even as God pronounces the curse upon all of humanity, he utters a promise that one day Messiah is going to come. The serpent will bruise his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. And God has not stopped speaking to humanity. And it's for that reason that you and I are here today. And that's where the writer of Hebrews begins. Long ago, God was speaking. And in his day, God spoke through Jesus Christ. The fundamental truth I want to convey to you guys tonight is that God himself is speaking to you. He has spoken, and the Holy Spirit is applying what he has said. And his message to us is ultimately a message of blessing and peace. And that message of peace should compel us to trust trust in the Lord Jesus and to speak peace to one another. So we'll consider these, these first one and a half verses of the, of the book uh, in three headings. Long ago through the prophets... The last days through the sun, and then we'll talk about two points of application. So first, long ago through the prophets. So before we start talking about the prophets and, and what God uttered long ago, we want to talk about what we're not talking about. And that is what our, our confession, or our testimony rather, refers to as general revelation. God is speaking through creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim His handiwork. And Romans 1 also tells us that all of creation reveals that there is a creator and we can also know something about his law in the things that he has made. This is, this is general revelation. We, we, know, we know it's wrong to murder. We know it's wrong to steal that which is not ours. And we know that also not just the, what we call the second table of the law is, is revealed, but also the, the first table. right? If, if you and I... We didn't make ourselves. Right? Whatever scientists say about where we came from, no person can say that they made themselves. Right? And so if you're a, a, a creation of at least your parents, right? and, and everything around you you know has a beginning, well, you shouldn't worship what's created. You should seek what is greater than the creation. Right? I mean, that's a, that's a really short uh, uh, explanation for, for why even creation itself says there's a creator. And you shouldn't worship trees, and you shouldn't worship rocks, and you shouldn't worship cows or chickens or, or whatever idols been made somewhere in the corner of, of the earth, right? So that's general revelation. So this, that's not what we're talking about tonight, right? Because general revelation 
is insufficient to reveal God's plan of salvation. And that plan of salvation is what God is speaking to and speaking about and what the writer of the Hebrews is talking about when he says, long ago, in various times and various ways, God spoke. So we're talking about special revelation. We're talking about God's plan of redemption. We're talking about the fact that man was kicked out of the garden. He's not in fellowship with God. And yet man was made in God's image. He was made to dwell with God, to be the caretaker of all of creation, to spread his image all over the face of the earth. How is God going to dwell with man again? That's the fundamental essence of what special revelation is all about. How is that going to happen? How can man dwell with God again? So long ago, God uttered that plan. I alluded it to, to at the very beginning. This, this promise of a Messiah, someone who would crush the head of the serpent. And, he, and, and God continued building upon that message. Adding color to it. And our, our writer of Hebrews talks about that using this term various times, various intervals. It wasn't just that one time in the garden. It was, it was later on. And again, and again, and again, as the years go on, God is uttering through various ways, not just various times, different ways. Fundamentally, there's, there's two, I guess, big categories you could, you could think of, of of the ways God, God spoke in the Old Testament. There's His divine presence. And, and that presence took, took different forms in the Old Testament, right? You guys remember uh, in the book of Exodus, God is with the people, present with them, but he's with them in a pillar of, of fire by night and a, and a cloud by day. Right? That, was, that was a revelation from God. God speaking to his people, saying, I'm with you. But it was, it was in, this, in, the, in, a, in, a, in a symbol, in this, in this symbolic form. God was revealing himself to them. God also was with them uh, with his divine presence in the Holy of Holies, the Shekinah glory that would appear over the Ark of the Covenant, above the cherubim that, that arched their wings over that golden ark that only the high priest could see once a year. But God was there. He was manifesting his presence. Long ago, various times, in various ways. The second big category of God revealing himself in various ways is uh, what... Herman Bavink uses the term in his Reformed Dogmatics, uh, illumination. Uh, that's God uh, giving a distinct message through a messenger. God could give a vision through a prophet, or he could, um, and the prophet would record it, and, or first speak it, and then maybe record it uh, in, a, in what we would later read in, in the major and minor prophets. Or uh, a writer, one of these prophets, could write a history, a narrative, being very careful to get details and, and explain where kings lived and, and where battles happened and where certain prophets spoke. You get the book of Second Samuel, First and Second Samuel, and Kings and Chronicles, and and that prophet was was led along by the Holy Spirit in crafting that narrative, illumination, right? So divine presence, illumination, God speaking in various ways through the prophets. And what was the content of, of, of this revelation? 
What was the content? What were people to understand when they saw the pillar of fire and the cloud and they heard about the Shekinah glory and glory filling the temple? When they read the prophets and when they heard them speaking in their midst? Well, the writer of Hebrews, that's what the rest of the book is basically about, is, is that content. And, and the writer of Hebrews, he focuses mostly upon key passages from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And, and just to give you a sample of that tonight, he spends a lot of time talking about Israel's wandering in the wilderness. And he talks about the specific structure and symbolism and meaning of the tabernacle. So, Israel wandering through the wilderness. Why is, what's, what's revealed in that? So, well, let's, let's walk through that a little bit. So, you know from your Bibles, if you've gone to Sunday school, Israel uh, left Egypt after God sent many plagues and delivered his people under, out, of, uh, out of slavery from uh, under Pharaoh. And he leads them into the wilderness. And he provides for them. Gives them food to eat. Their clothes don't wear out. He does signs and wonders. And yet, the people, they grumble, they complain, and they reject it. And what are they rejecting? Fundamentally, what are they rejecting? They're rejecting God himself. They're rejecting God's presence among them. And this, this narrative builds towards this, this, this penultimate rejection of God's leading them away from Pharaoh through the wilderness, and he's going to bring them back into the promised land. And they're scared, and they don't want to go there, and it's, there's giants, and we can't do it. And, and so God says, fine, you're not going to enter the promised land. And the writer of Hebrews builds to this point in chapter 4 and saying, the people didn't enter the rest that God was seeking to give to them. And why is that significant? What's that What's that about? Again, we're not going to get into the whole book, but just a little taste here. The promised land was this message of salvation. God bringing his people back into the garden, back into the place where they were exiled from. That was the whole point of the Exodus, not to just be out from under the thumb of Pharaoh so they could have freedom to do whatever they wanted to. No, it was freedom to go back and dwell with God in his land, under his law under his kingship. And his people rejected that. So what's the content of, of God speaking long ago in various times in various ways? It's God wants to dwell with his people and his people keep rejecting him. Second theme that the writer of Hebrews spends a lot of time talking about is, is the tabernacle. And, and what's the point of the tabernacle? It's this very elaborate structure Every detail is specified. We got, it's a, it's a big tent. It's two big rooms. In front of the tent, there's an altar, and there's a, there's a wash basin. Inside the tent, there's a lampstand and a table to put bread, and there's an altar of incense. And then the very back of the tabernacle, there's the Holy of Holies, and it's got the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where God's immediate presence dwells with the people at this time. And the point of the tabernacle is, this is what it looks like for God to dwell with his people. But also, this is what it takes to get into God's presence. See, if we have sin, we're unclean, we're excluded from God. Again, we have no right to be on speaking terms with God, but God came to us 
And first he came to Israel and he explained to them, I'm holy, but you can get to me through sacrifice, through cleansing. And this intricate system, this what we call the Levitical law, was, was a gift from God to picture for his ancient people. This is what the path back to me looks like symbolically. And it always pointed to something greater. Right? And, and you can see that the crux of these two, the content of these messages that God's giving in these elaborate ways is, is simply, I'm going to dwell with you, and here's how. I'm coming to you, here's how you can dwell with me. It's the gospel. That's how our Israelite uh, brothers heard the gospel. God coming to them in these ways. But again, the legacy of the Old Testament is that God's people reject Him time and time and time again. The nation of Israel rejects the Word of God. And where does the history of Israel go? Right? It's the same thing that happened to Adam and Eve. They reject God's plan for them, and God kicks them out. Right? Israel's kicked out of the promised land. The temple's destroyed. They have to be away in a foreign land, away from where they were supposed to be, dwelling with God. And now God does bring them back, but they never get political power again. Right? The temple that they do rebuild, it's a little smaller. There's this, and, they, and they never get to really control their own destiny directly. They're under the, the thumb of other foreign powers. And, and it's, it's, like, it's like God gave a plan, He explained, Expressed his goodness to them, and he and they ruined it. it, it it's never, never the same again. That's long ago. Various times in various ways, God spoke through the prophets, and it starts to look like this grand narrative of God's revelation to ancient Israel is going to end in a whimper. And so, where does the writer of Hebrews go after this? He says, but in the latter days... In these latter days, God has spoken through his Son. So to understand this transition here, this but, we have to understand what these last days or latter days uh, means. The prophets, they received God's revelation. They had the, the, the tabernacle system. They had the history. We sang about it a little bit in Psalm 78. You know, don't be like those guys who rejected it. Uh, but they did again and again and again. And so the prophets, they're talking about how, how much Israel's messed up. And so most of the prophets, they, they look to the future. They look to a time when things would be set right. And then what they were speaking to fundamentally was the time when the Messiah would come. And they referred to this time throughout the Old Testament as the last days or the latter days. And so when the writer of Hebrews uses this phrase, anyone who knew their Old Testament would know that he's invoking these, these passages about the time of the coming Messiah. So what are, what are some examples? What am I talking about? Well, we, we, we see this phrase used in Genesis 49. Chapter, uh, 49. Genesis 49 is, is at the end of the Genesis when Jacob, he's gathered his, uh, his 12 sons around him, and he's blessing them. 
And the blessing that he gives is, is a little picture of kind of the trajectory of those sons and, and where they're going to end up. Um, it's prophetic. In Genesis 49, verse 1, it says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. And that, and that phrase, in the days to come, literally is in the, in the last days. And you skip down and you, you go to the prophecy for, for Judah. And it says, Jacob prophesies, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In the last days, a scepter shall not depart from Judah. Okay. What else is going to happen in the last days? Well, we see this phrase mentioned again in in the book of Numbers. Uh through the prophet uh, Balaam, who, even though he was uh, a wicked man, uh, as you'll read in Numbers, he still uttered the word of God and only uttered the word of God, even when it was going against what the kings who hired him uh, wanted him to say. He was bound by the word of God. And, and, and what he utters here, to the chagrin of the pagan kings who hired him to curse Israel, he actually blesses Israel. And what's part of that blessing is alluding to these last days. Balaam prophesies, Come, I will tell you what this people will do to your people. That is the, the pagan king who, who hired him. In the latter days. He says, Numbers twenty four seventeen. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Okay, we got this, this kingship theme going on here in the last days. All right, where, where else do we see this? Isaiah 2 and, and Micah 4, 1. They both say, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest in the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. We've got a king coming. We've got peoples coming from all over the world to this kingdom. It's going to be bigger than... Uh, it's referring to this kingdom as, 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 as a mountain. The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Greatest of all the kingdoms. And the last example I'll give here is from Hosea 3.5. Hosea prophesies, Afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. The consistent refrain of these prophets in the face of Israel's rejection of all that God had for them, was to point them to a day when the Messiah would come and usher in a new age in the last days. And so when the writer of Hebrews says, in these last days, he's making an extremely bold statement. He's no longer using the term the last days. He's saying these these last days, right now, at the time that the writer of Hebrews is speaking, he's saying, I'm living, you're living in the last days. He's essentially ending, today is the time of the end of Jewish history as we know it in the Old Testament. This moment in history is the age of the Messiah. It's a new epoch. Right now, 
It was the hope of, of every Israelite family that these days would come. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, in the first century A.D., the time has come. The, the writer's historical awareness of Christ's place in history cannot be understated. The message that is proclaimed in the book of Hebrews, the message that God delivers through His Son is not just a message that is for you as an individual, although it is no less than that. It's a message about your place and my place in history. See, we don't serve a God who just rules our imaginations as if we're not connected to His cosmic plans. Right? Our, our, our faith is not like a video game that you can just pick the settings that you want and you punch in the numbers. You can be one character one day and one character the next. You go conquer a village. You go conquer a continent. And then you turn the game off and you go eat a bowl of cereal. No. It's not a game. This is history. This is everything that this cosmos is about. God's plan for all of creation is about to enter into overdrive. We're going to enter in a new phase of humanity. And the apostolic writings of the New Testament, they step into these prophecies. The entire trajectory of the Old Testament leads to this point. That explains why the apostles were so fanatical. I mean, how do you get 12 men all of them martyrs. How do you get people willing to sell their possessions, live in poverty, have their properties ransacked, be called fools? The Apostle Paul says, if the resurrection hasn't happened, we're the people most to be pitied in the whole world. Where does that enthusiasm come from? Well, if you believe the whole point of human history points to Jesus Christ and you, get, you got to see him, and you get to tell the whole world about him. You better believe your life would change. You better believe you'd be willing to die for that kind of message. And that is the message of the Bible. And so we come to, so, so let's unpack that. Through his son. God has spoken through his son. This is, this is the message of the last days. What are we talking about? Well, God speaking through his son Jesus Christ, we know it's not limited uh, to just the, the words that he said. What, what do I mean by that? So I have here a red-letter Bible, uh, and you know it, it's, uh, it's kind of unfortunate. I'm not a fan of the red-letter Bible. I have this Bible because I'm really fond of it, and I, I know where everything is in it, and it's, it's got a nice feel to it. You know, it opens flat when I lay it down. Um, but I really wish the red letters weren't there. Because the revelation of Jesus Christ is more than just the words he uttered. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. It's his whole life. It's everything, the entirety of his incarnation, in all that he said and did as the incarnate God. Was the revelation of Jesus Christ complete when he gave the Sermon on the Mount? No. That was part of it. But when Jesus said, 
blessed are those who are poor in spirit, that, that revelation is not complete until Jesus himself embodies that by becoming the most humiliated man in the history of the world. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, true revelation from the mouth of Christ. But in one sense, we don't understand what it means to mourn like Jesus mourned and like he meant when we, until we see him weeping in front of the tomb of Lazarus over just how horrible the curse was. When we say that Jesus, when we see Jesus saying, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall become sons of God, that is true revelation. But it needs to be completed by seeing the Son of God hanging on a cross, accomplishing final peace between God and man through the reconciliation that he worked on the cross. Jesus saying, Love your enemies. True revelation delivered in the Sermon on the Mount. But do we understand what it means until we see Christ saying on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We know Jesus uttered the words, destroy this temple and I will build it up and raise it up in three days. True revelation from the words of Christ. It'll be read in your Bibles. But do we understand what that means until his body is destroyed on the cross? as the perfect sacrifice, Christ offering it up as the true high priest, his body, now the locus of God's presence among his people, Christ, the true temple. Do we understand what Christ's words means until we understand what he did? And so the revel- when God says he speaks through his son, he's talking about the words he uttered, but he's also talking about everything Christ did and represents in his incarnation as the God-man, as the Messiah, come in the last days. So the rest of the book of Hebrews is explaining the content of who Jesus is, how he fulfills all the Old Testament shadows and types, and how Christ is the fundamental message of God to us, message of salvation, that I will yet dwell with my people once more. And this, this, this last phrase here, God has spoken. This is, a, this is a past tense word. God has spoken. It's a complete speech. There is no more revelation after Christ. Once Christ came and ascended, there was no more There was fundamentally no more content to deliver from God. If you know the revelation of Christ, you have all you need. Now, some of you might say, well, Justin, after Christ ascended, the Gospels hadn't even been written yet, and the New Testament hadn't been written yet, so what? I don't know. Can we go there? Well, two things. The New Testament fundamentally is declaring the revelation that came in Christ. And it does that by explaining the meaning of who Christ is and was as God's final revelation and applying that. So the apostolic ministry that's recorded for us in the epistles, the book of Acts, um, all the epistles, these are the apostles unpacking the meaning of who Jesus is. 
right? Jesus came. He, God, has spoken through His Son in these last days. You can't do better than Jesus. But what's that mean? That's why we have the New Testament, to explain what that means. Who is Jesus? That was the apostles' burden. That's why they wrote the Scriptures for us in the New Testament. Who is Jesus? What has He done? We see this in Jude 3. The apostles, what are they doing? They're fundamentally delivering the faith once and for all to the saints. Christ has come, and the apostles are explaining it to God's people. Or we see in Ephesians 2.20, which describes the household of God. It's built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Himself being the cornerstone. Christ is the content. He is the revelation. And the apostles, drawing upon all the reservoir of the prophets, are explaining what this means. So, we have the New Testament because it's the explanation of who Christ is as God's final revelation. We also see it's, it's the application. And this application is, is the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? This, this was the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the apostolic uh, um, word that was preached and written in the first century was the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in this new epoch in history. And Jesus told us this would happen. He said in John chapters 14 through 16 about the Helper. He says in 15 verse 26, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. What's John, what's John when, he, when he records Christ's words here, what's Christ saying? He's saying, the content of what the Spirit will bear witness to is me. The content of what the apostles bear witness to is me. They don't, bring a, they don't, bring, they don't add on to Christ. They explain Christ. And the Holy Spirit's job is to apply that to individual hearts. Jesus himself said, that's why I have to go. That's why I have to leave. He says in John chapter 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. Who does the Spirit bear witness to? When the Holy Spirit convicts of sin and judgment, What's, what's, what's he doing in our hearts? He's pointing us to Jesus. Jesus is the final revelation. And the Holy Spirit's ministry through the apostles is to explain and apply that revelation of Jesus Christ to the church. Herman Bavink, he, uh, he summarizes this in his, his uh, prolegomena to his Reformed dogmatics. He says, The Holy Spirit is not a revelation of things previously hidden, but the application of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge present in Christ and displayed in His Word. Christ is the revelation. The Holy Spirit bears witness to Him through the ministry of the apostles. And that Word, when we read it, when we understand who Jesus is, if we were to go through the whole book of Hebrews and the Holy Spirit were to apply it to us, Fundamentally, what would happen? We would see and hear Jesus. 
at this point. What's, less for us to, what's less left for us to do is marvel. Marvel in the fact that God has given full revelation through His Son. God has spoken to us. Jesus is what this whole world is about. Jesus is the end of history. You are here. We are here as the church because Jesus has spoken. And in 2,000 years since Christ came to earth, there was no name that is more famous than Jesus' name. Period. Full stop. Nobody has more fame than him. And his fame will continue to spread because he is the end of history. God has spoken in the world, and his name is Jesus. And so just a couple points of application, and we'll do this by way of two questions. What do you hear when you consider that God has spoken in Jesus Christ? When you listen to Jesus' message, when you, when you consider his life, what do you hear? What do you hear? Do you hear just a bunch of facts about a Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago? Do you, do you, do you consider... As, as some say, it was, he was a good storyteller. He was a good moral teacher. He had good things to say. What do you hear when you consider Jesus Christ? Do you consider him the, the, the final and full revelation of God for all of history and of your life? Or maybe, maybe you feel condemned. Maybe this is too weighty for you. Maybe this is too, it's too much. This, this talk about the end of history, this talk about last things, this talk about where all this is going, I, I can't handle it. I do want just my video games. I do want to just live in a world that I can turn off when it's a little overwhelming. I can't handle this. I'd urge you to consider the fact that Again, by all rights, we shouldn't be on speaking terms with God. By all rights, he shouldn't have restarted a conversation with us. And as, as heavy as this message is, as, as, as consequential as it is for your life and for history and for every aspect of life, it's God speaking to you. It's God restarting a conversation. It's God coming to you and saying, I'm not done with humanity. And if you're in this room, it's God saying to you personally, I'm not done with you. You could be playing video games right now. You could be anywhere else. You could be watching football. You could be at a restaurant. But you're here, now, in time and place, in real history. God wants to speak to you. He has spoken to you. And so there's two responses to this message. Number one, just trust in Jesus. And that's the burden of Hebrews. The rest of it is because of who Jesus is, put your full confidence in him. So do that tonight. Do that right now. He is worthy of your full confidence. He is worthy of all your trust. And second, speak peace to one another. God restarted a conversation with you. God didn't leave you 
as someone whom he rejected, he kept the conversation going. And because his message to us is fundamentally peace, peace, I've come to end the warfare. I've come to restore a fellowship with you. This needs to characterize the Christian life. Who do you need to restart a conversation with? What are the strained relationships in your life where communication is broken down? Where you might not be on speaking terms with someone? By God's grace, you can restart those conversations. They might be hard. You might need to get counsel from your pastor or some elders or your parents. It might take multiple steps. It took God 4,000 years to write the Bible. Right? Every step mattered. No ink was wasted when God wrote the scriptures. And it led to peace. And our heart's disposition in the brokenness of our relationships, wherever we find them, is that we are peacemakers because God spoke peace to us. So, if you've tasted that peace, if you dwell with God because He stooped down and reached down and grabbed you out of your sin, speak peace to one another. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So trust in the Son who speaks peace to you this evening. And imitate God by speaking peace to one another. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have not abandoned us. Although we rejected you, you still pursued us. Though we ran and hid ourselves and covered ourselves with fig leaves, you came into the garden and you promised that your Messiah would come. And Lord, I pray that we would hear the Lord Jesus as your final word to sinners. That in him we would know all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That we would know the end of our sins. That we would know the cleansing of our consciences and that we would know the sweetness of renewed fellowship and communion with you. And we pray that out of this union and communion with you, we would seek to extend peace to others, that you would heal our relationships, that you would make us peacemakers wherever we find warfare and strife. Lord, please go with us. Apply this word to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.